Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Dale Corpus. Dale is a realtor, mortgage loan officer, and real estate investor who has been in the business for over 18 years here in the Bay Area. In this episode, Dale will talk about how the Bay Area market has changed over these past 18 years and how COVID has changed the way that buyers are purchasing properties. We'll also be talking about the advantages of buying passive investments like notes or joining a syndication versus buying your own properties out of state. And we'll even talk if there's going to be a crash in the real estate market in early 2021. So if you're interested in investing in Bay Area real estate, you won't want to miss this episode. This episode is sponsored by Conventus Lending. Conventus is a hard money lender based in San Francisco that can help you with your fix and flip projects or help you get a loan for your rental properties. So if you're looking for a hard money loan, you can schedule a call with me with a link down in the description below. And now let's get on to the show. Yo, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Hey there. Uh, well, thanks for having me on the show. My name is Dale Corpus. I am both a realtor, residential, and I also am a mortgage broker. I do uh, both like commercial, residential, non-QM, SBA, and private money. I've been in this, been in mortgage and real estate industry since 2002. So I was here even before the mortgage, uh, mortgage credit crisis, and I'm still here, um, actually. And so Born and raised in the Bay Area, I currently live in San Ramon, California, I have two kids, and I'm also a passive real estate investor. I invest in syndications and mortgage notes. Awesome. Do you want to tell us how you got started in the real estate profession? That's an interesting one because it's one of those things that I never thought I'd be doing what I do right now. I think it's just one of those things that just, I feel like it just happens to you. So my degree, actually, I went to Santa Clara University. I graduated with a degree in electrical engineering. Me too. Uh, I know you did too. It's funny because my parents had real estate salesperson's licenses, but they were really not too active using them. And they just thought it would be good for somebody in the family to have it. And so the year I graduated, they told me to take the test and it was completely different from what I was learning. I'm like, what am I going to do with this? But I've been at taking tests, by the way. So I just took it, passed and I'm like, okay, so that's good. So I, when I graduated, I graduated college in 2000. When I graduated, I ended up having my first tech job. The bust happened around 2000 when I got laid off. And then I was like, what am I going to do next? And then I saw that I had a real estate license already and I was more of an opportunist. And I, I was thinking maybe this is my calling. I could get either into real estate or mortgages. And I was actually also obsessed with how do you buy in the Bay area? You know how ex expensive it is right now, but back then around 2001, I thought it was so expensive already. And I was trying to figure out how do people buy back then? So I was obsessed with that. And so what I ended up doing is I ended up, you know, going the mortgage route, honestly, because back then I couldn't even afford realtor dues, as you know, because you also do real estate sales as well. Being a realtor is expensive. Huh. Makes sense. Yeah. So how, that's how I started off. It just, it happened because I had that in my back pocket and I got laid off from my uh, engineering job. And I realized that wasn't something that I wasn't really interested in, in the first place. Yeah, I mean, very similar boat as you went to school for electrical engineering, and I worked as an engineer for seven, eight years working on okay. satellites. But then I realized wow. this is not where I want to be. You know, 30 years from now, right. I'm going to end up like my coworkers. This is not how I want to be. So, how can you, I guess, change that? And I thought real estate was going to be the way to my path to financial freedom. 
then the funny thing, I was about to use the same term financial freedom because the types of discussions I was having, I remember when I, with my coworkers um, in my tech job, it wasn't about financial freedom. It was just, everybody seemed doom and gloom about just their corporate job. And I was thinking about like, how am I gonna get out of this? And I was already thinking about cash flow and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, why am I the only one that feels like I'm talking this way or thinking these things? And, I, and that's, at that point, I realized that I wasn't in the right profession. <laughs> it's true. I mean, they're complaining about how their boss isn't giving them the promotion they deserve. They worked really hard and only got like a 2% pay increase compared to all of their other coworkers who didn't right. do that much. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Why don't you go out and quit? And then they have all these excuses right. like, oh, well, you know, I have a family to take care of and it's scary if I leave this job to another job, then I lose some pension benefits. And I was like, right. I don't want to be stuck in this situation. Right. I mean, it was nice though, getting into the business and still being able to, obviously I was young enough, I was still living with family at the time. So that helped me as I was just building my business, you know, making all the connections that I needed to do. Because right now I'm fortunate that I've been in the business so long that it's pretty much like a referral based type of business. I'm so grateful for my clients, repeat clients and all my business partners. Because I, every place I've worked at, every bank I've worked at, every brokerage I've worked at, I've kept in touch with everybody along the way because those connections both in real estate sales, mortgage, and even real estate investing go a long way. I even met you just through networking and just that's how I'm even on this video recording with you. Right. I mean, I think for real estate, if anyone's just getting into it, it can be kind of hard to start the ball. And that's why people go out and they do their door knocking, their cold calls. Right. But eventually it really does become just referral based. Like the other day I had a podcast with someone who gets over 5,000 deals sent to them every single week. Whereas the person who's just starting out can barely get one or two deals, maybe even a month. Right. I mean, once, when they, once somebody gets to really know, know how you are as a person, know, like, and trust you and know how you actually work, you know, they know, they know what things to bring to you, like uh, what kind of business to give to you, what kind of deals to give to you, for example. They'll know what you invest, what you invest in if you're an investor, if you're a passive investor or an active investor, et cetera. Yeah. And they'll know if you're closed or not. You're not just someone who's there for a little bit and they'll disappear. Oh yeah, absolutely. That personal trust and, you know, connection is so important. I mean, it's kind of funny. I I know that I'm in the business of arranging loans and selling homes, but it's funny. I always tell tell people, I feel like I sell trust more than I sell homes or more than loans. It's just that trust is so important just with everything that we do and just real estate investing is, is, is is also um, part of the mix of all of that. Mm. Absolutely. So over the past 18 years, I'm sure you've seen the Bay Area change a lot. Like you said, it was very expensive back then. You know, when I was a little kid, I remember going to open houses with my mom and my dad and saying, wow, this house in Cupertino for $700,000, like how are you ever going right. to afford that? Now that same house is probably worth $2.5 million. In right. another 30 years, the house might be worth, who knows what, six, $10 million. We have no idea. Right. And that might be a new norm. Like, oh yeah, how's in Cupertino go for $10 million? No big deal. Right. How was that journey for you these past 18 years? What are you, I guess, most surprised that has changed since that time? What's been really interesting is, I mean, had I known that tech was going to be as big as it was when it was, I should have bought more homes when I was like right in college, you know? I was, yeah. uh, but what's been interesting is I didn't know that, like the, I didn't realize how much tech was going to affect uh, real estate prices that much. I mean, I went to Santa Clara University, right in the hub of Silicon Valley. I mean, all the places that I lived in the South Bay while I was in college, I mean, afterwards, they're all multi-million dollar homes. 
platforms because places like Google and Facebook and whatnot are the biggest, like our big employers out of there. Like, I mean, even the first home I bought was in San Jose. It was a three bedroom condo. It was around 2003, 2004. I bought it zero down when that existed prior to the credit crash. I bought that condo brand new for 430,000, okay? I know that when I sold it, it was before the credit crash happened. And so I, I was able to walk away with a nice profit. But funny thing is sometimes I check on the value of it and Google is coming you know, to downtown San Jose and my unit was not that far from downtown San Jose. And I last checked it, that same three bedroom condo was over a million dollars. So it's just amazing how much something like, you know, what the tech industry has really done to the Bay Area economy because it really fuels what's going on out of here where, I mean, speaking of like, we're in the middle of COVID right now, right? Certain sectors are really hurting right now because of COVID, but certain industries are booming right now. I mean, still tech is still happening and and there's even IPOs still happening right now. One of my clients works for a tech company that's about to IPO shortly. And it's just, it's kind of funny because I feel like we're in our own little bubble uh, over here, fueled mainly, mainly by tech. And so we're insulated from a lot of the stuff sometimes that we hear that's happening, especially with COVID where places are getting hit hard because our prices are, are really, are still shooting up right now during COVID. On the real estate sales side, I mean, I'm even seeing that with my, with my buyers because it's gotten even harder to get offers accepted, for example, because there's even more competition. And I'm talking specifically in the East Bay in San Francisco Bay Area, because a lot of folks from San Francisco, the tech money from San Francisco, for example, they don't want to live in their condos anymore. And they're valuing detached single family homes with yards because uh, they just want more space. Okay. And another thing that I find was really funny is, uh, and interesting is people didn't really used to value pools before that wasn't seen as a big asset to have in a home, but like now people want pools. People are building pools, which is what I'm noticing. And because before it used to be a nuisance because people saw it as almost like paying HOA dues because of the maintenance of it all. But now it's like a desired feature. Does that make sense? Of course. People want to stretch their legs out. Like before right. they would get these condos in the heart of downtown San Francisco because right. the major pain point was the commute. Like it right. sucks driving an hour and a half every single day into the city and then paying $20, $30 a day for parking or taking the right. part. Now you can just you know, walk downstairs and you're at work. But now that you right. can work anywhere, why not get an equivalently priced you know, single family home, right. but a lot of space, like you said, a pool, right. especially in the East Bay. So we've been doing these like monthly meetups at our meetup group. And every month we go over the statistics and we always see that East Bay has been going up in price as the condos have been going down. So yeah, I mean, things have changed quite quickly. And do you think this is like, do you think there's gonna be a permanent thing where these lower price and secondary markets are going to increase in price? Or is it just because right now we have these temporary COVID measures where you don't have to show up to work? Okay, so when you're talking about secondary areas, like what city, what areas are we talking about? Like, is there I mean, I've seen like Gilroy and Morgan Hill going up a lot. Well, I honestly think that what COVID has done, though, is that it made working from home be more okay. So even though people may be needing to go back to work, I think that there's going to be a lot more flexibility. So I honestly still think that the prices will still, you know, go up. I mean, I think some of the bigger employers have realized how productive that we could all be still working at home. So do I think that? I still think that there's more growth because still people will value that space. 
and the good schools on top of that in a lot of these areas versus living over like in, in the city. So I think it's here to stay. I do think areas like San Francisco where the condo market is really depressed right now. And I, I actually own a condo in, in South of the market. It's depressed right now too, but I think San Francisco is one of those cities. It's such an international city. It will bounce back. It's gone through many booms and busts. It's that type of, it's, it just has that type of reputation of a city. It's going to definitely bounce back once COVID is over, but it'll take some time. Okay. But I, I feel that the areas like Gilroy, the outer lighter areas, you know, that are more suburban are still going to have a lot of draw to them because if people don't necessarily have to uh, work, go to work as much into the office, to the physical office, then you're going to see more of a trend for people wanting the bigger homes. You know, it's funny, a couple years ago, I always thought that markets in like Tracy, Gilroy, Morgan Hill, they would eventually go up, but it would be because of the emergence of like self-driving cars. So you can have your one hour commute, right. but since you're not driving, you can you know, sleep, watch a movie, put on your makeup, whatever. And it's right. not that big of a deal. So you could pay more to live an hour or two hours away. But now we have that because of COVID. And I'm thinking, like you said, even if shelter in place lifts and people are expected to go back into work, it could be like a phased version of that. So you're not expected yep. to go to work every day. Maybe you only go to work once or twice a week for very important meetings. And the rest, you can right. still do your work from home. Right. And if that's the yeah, case, I, it doesn't matter. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have some, like, I mean, employers, corporations will have just more, they're looking through it, at it through working from home through a different lens now. We've already experienced, this was like our test lab. It's like, it works. We're still productive. And so they'll offer, I feel like they're going to be offering more flexibility. But funny thing that you mentioned Tracy, because I did have a couple of clients that are actually looking at Tracy. And what's, what I found really interesting about Tracy is that even Tracy is super hot right now. Even the, the, both the resale and the brand new home market out of there, as in brand new, you know, where you have to go to the sales office and buy with a builder, even they're selling well because there's, I've talked to uh, three different builders out of there and they're all currently all sold out of inventory, which normally is not the case for a Tracy market. But the fact that they too, the new home sales offices are all out of inventory currently too, this shows you how what's happening and people are all moving out of even to an area like Tracy as well. Same thing even goes for like a Brentwood and Lathrop, you know, yeah. I had coworkers who worked with me in Sunnyvale and they lived in Tracy because you know, you can get a bigger house for cheaper rent right. and their kids can go to good schools and they were willing to make that two hour drive one way every single day. Right. Um, so yeah, now it's if you don't have that. It's a commitment. Yeah. It's definitely I, mean, commitment. I was wondering, I was thinking, wow, is it really worth it? But Hey, you know, I guess to reach their yeah. own. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So what do you, what do you suggest for people who do have properties in SF or places like New York? Do they just hunker down and hopefully ride the wave until it recovers? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I have a handful of folks So my, my own unit is still rented out, but I have a handful of folks whose units aren't rented out, but there are going to just wait and see because of the fact they don't want to sell, you know, when the market's down. They too, like I, believe that the market in SF will recover. And it's like, we're all fortunate enough that we have, we don't have adjustable loans. The nice thing about, you know, this happening now versus happening like pre-credit crash is that we all have really low 30-year fixed rates, which is amazing. Because I know that it feels, I mean, during the last crash, 
people's homes were depressed and, and the, the loan values were greater than the market value of the home. And on top of that, they had mortgages that were about to expire in, uh, in terms of in getting in convert from being fixed to adjustable. So they had that going on, but we don't have that. So we could wait things out for most folks that they have, especially if they have a 30 year fix. So I think that myself, even if when it comes to the time that my tenant did move out and it, it took a while for me to get a new tenant, I'm just going to wait things out. I'm still, I'd still be fine. And my mortgage payment has been nice and low since I've been able to have a 30 year fix for some time and the principal balance has gone down through amortization. Yeah, that's a really good point. This time there is no rush. You as owner, you have a lot of yeah. equity. You're able to continue to make these payments. So it's very unlikely that you're going to be in a quote unquote distress situation to have you're to not. sell. Right. Yeah, we're, we're not. I mean, everything that the type of distress that we're talking about right now is not the type of distress that we were talking about back in like 2000 to around 2008. That was a different type of distress. That was that was catastrophic. So I don't know if you ever had this conversation with some buyers, but some people I've talked to are under the impression that in early 2021, we're going to see something happen. You know, they're saying that, oh, right now our market is inflated artificially because of this stimulus right. package. And Stimulus is going to end in December. You know, once the election is over, then they don't care about us anymore. They're just going to, you know, do their thing and not stimulate the economy. But then right. again, like people are saying, people have equity in their homes. They have low interest rates on their homes. Right. Uh, so what is your thought on a, you know, early Q1 2021 real estate? You crash? know, specifically for the Bay Area, because I still think we're kind of insulated from what, what happens because of the tech industry is still so strong here. I honestly think we're going to be fine. Like this year for real estate sales has been one of my best years ever. And we're in the middle of COVID. Does Correct. that make sense? I feel that like people talk about having real estate sales being seasonal where it's kind of slower during when holidays, this holiday season comes like Thanksgiving, Christmas. But I think, and a lot of my colleagues agree that since COVID, real estate has lost its seasonality. Okay. Because it is so busy and a lot of transactions are happening right now, still multiple offers are happening. And it's just, I think that same momentum will even come easily into Q1, Q2 easily. Cause rates are even like, I mean, a 30 year fixed conforming rate right now is still like in the mid twos. And they just announced the, the new low balance and high balance conforming limits. I'm not sure if you saw it, but I, the new high balance conforming limit for all Bay Area counties is now 822,000. And before that, it was about 765,000. So even that's gone up because just, you know, increases every year when they look at, you know, the average um, home values, et cetera, in the area. So um, I think that I think that real estate specific in the Bay Area will still be strong, especially if it's a detached single family home, because that's where the demand is right now. But I am not concerned. I think that we're also being the low mortgage interest rates, which I still could think are going to be low, at least for the next couple of years, are still going to be helping our real estate prices up because of that affordability factor. The money is so uh, more affordable right now, so it makes the, the buying power that much stronger. Okay, so folks that, I'm sorry, but like folks that were, yeah, folks that were on the fence from like maybe like two years ago, they're out of the woodwork right now because rates are are like a percent lower plus than from from back then. So they they're seeing value in just the money. Yeah, so so it's not just the price; it's like the affordability, how much you have to pay every single month. That usually drives what they can actually buy. 
Yeah, it's great. It's like I consider like I always have a uh, conversation with, for example, clients and buyers of price versus cost. And sometimes people are really focused on that price. But if they're getting a loan, you should actually be looking at the cost. When I say cost, that's actual what you're paying on a monthly basis. Because if you're getting a loan, that's where the, the interest rate really comes into play. So most folks obviously in the Bay Area because the price points are so much, they do need a loan. So, you know, it's like, it's one of those things. It's like, don't so be so fixated on costs, especially in the Bay Area. If, you're, if you don't own yet, just get in the market and let the market work for you. You know, most people, I was just having a conversation yesterday with a first time home buyer that was referred to me by another realtor that was out of the area. And they were fixated on actually getting only a single family home for $600,000 over in East Bay. Number one, that property type for $600,000 is hard to find in the East Bay because everything's got expensive. And like he was, they were just adamant about not paying HOA dues. But I was trying to have a conversation with him. I ended up buying and living in it, maybe on average, maybe four to six years, because that first home is usually the stepping stone to your next home. Um, Because the Bay Area is so expensive that it's rare for somebody to buy a detached single family home as their first home, just because the price points are so crazy. But I was just trying to get him to realize that it's not about the property type that you should be focusing on. It should be where you should be more focused on getting into the Bay Area real estate market. He's not an investor. He's living in it, but he's kind of investing in his future because this is not his permanent home forever. I'm, I'm just trying to give him a, a game plan to buy that, that next home, which could be his forever home. And so just trying to get him open to see the idea that like a condo or even a townhome where there would be more inventory in that particular price point in better neighborhoods, for example, too, is not a bad idea. Does it make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I noticed that there are some homes, like you mentioned, they go for like multiple offers and they probably stay on the market for 10 days or less. But then on the flip side, there are some properties that sit on the market for a long time. It's because of COVID. What do you think is the difference between these two property types? The ones that go really quickly versus the ones that sit for a long time? Okay. A lot of times it's the condition of the property. I mean, you know, unless you're an investor, most first time on buyers and just buyers in general, they're not handy people and they don't have time. They're busy professionals. They don't want to hire anybody that, not that they can't, but they'd rather not deal with having to hire a contractor, et cetera, to fix things up, especially during COVID because people are sensitive just, you know, with other people inside of their house as well. But so the condition of a home is really important. And also, you know, the location of the home, the neighborhood that it's in, and also just making sure that the home has all the same features that of other homes in the same price. Because a lot of times these homes that are sitting too are just overpriced. It's not that they won't sell. It's just that they are overpriced, but the seller won't budge. Mm. Yeah. So Does I guess that's sense? The, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the come down to expectations and I guess have the house look presentable and make it easy to show. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, in most Bay area cities, if a property is not went pending in about three weeks, most likely it's overpriced, mm-hmm. especially right now, you know, and what kind of adjustment do you see people doing to like, what, what's the strategy that you've seen works if a listing has been sitting for a long time? Well, I know that, Sellers think differently from realtors. So sure. if that makes sense. Yes. So, so I don't know how to answer this one, but sometimes, I mean, like a lot of times like a 5% reduction is needed, but 
it's one of those things that I could say out loud, but it's, it's hard when, you know, if you were the seller and it was your own home and you're really fixated on that price point, it's really a hard thing to do in practice. Absolutely. And then in terms of marketing, because it's COVID, you can't just have open houses. Have you seen people be doing anything specifically to get their property out there? Right. So a lot more social media has been happening and virtual open houses have been happening via like FaceTime, sometimes Zoom, sometimes just, you know, walking, like having a list, list, listing agent, sometimes what they do is they put the, the buyer's agent and the buyer on FaceTime and walk through the property and describe it and see if there's questions. Okay. Since there's like, since there's, you know, no open houses and sometimes what I've seen is uh, realtors do virtual open houses where they're there for an hour, just giving a Zoom link out and just answering questions. Showings are still definitely allowable, but everything's a private showing now. So all the buyer's agents are tired because they have to show every single house. And you have to <laughs> you know, fill out a peed every single time too. Yeah, every single time. And that, that's already time consuming. But, you know, houses are still moving, obviously. It's just we're, it's funny because we're just using more technology and what do you call it? And a lot of people now are, are more so uh, using Matterport on their listings. I always see, I see that even used more so. It's kind of that same technology that Google Maps uses for Street View where you could get that 360 view. So Matterport's the same thing for a house where you could actually virtually go inside it, do a 360 view of it in different rooms. And I'm like, almost kind of like virtually walk through it just like Google Street View. Yeah, those things are super useful. Right. Let's go into the investing side. What kind of investments have you done? Okay. For investing, when I first started in real estate mortgages, like before the credit crash, I started picking up out-of-state rentals because they made sense to me and because they were low enough for me to to be able to afford and they already cash flow from the get-go. I didn't invest in anything in the Bay Area and I actually still don't actually because the numbers don't make sense to me. I invest outside the area for cash flow. So when I think of investing, I think of cash flow versus appreciation is extra, but I, I like to know that I have the fat cash flow coming in and I'm fine with that. People, I have friends that only invest in the Bay Area, for example, but they're playing mainly the appreciation game. And a lot of times they're not necessarily cash flow positive, but that's not what I'm doing. So Let's go back. So I talked about me doing out-of-state rentals. I've actually got out of that game when I realized that it wasn't as scalable as I thought it could be. It actually is scalable, but it takes more time and effort from me where it was taking away from me doing my regular you know, job of selling residential real estate and loans. And I was thinking, there is no way that I am going to be able to grow this the way I want to grow it. So what I was trying to look for was stuff that was more passive. That's how I ended up getting into, for example, I talked about mortgage notes. I come from, again, the lending background. So what notes were new to me. So notes is just basically a mortgage. Okay. When you own a mortgage note, you are actually the lender of the note. Most of my mortgage notes are done, for example, in my self-directed IRA. So my IRA um, actually is the, is the title of the, is the, lender, is the lender name on the mortgage that that borrower is paying. And so when I experienced that, I was like, this is real passive income. It felt like it was more like the mailbox money that people talk about. I didn't have to do anything. 
uh, yes, you need to kind of just, you know, you need to work with your services sometimes if, you know, things are late or whatnot, but it was very, very passive. And I got into mortgage notes, by the way, through a referral business partner of mine who referred me real estate sales business. And I remember setting up a, what we call a solo 401k, I'm self-employed by the way. And so I was trying to, I set up a solo 401k because I was trying to minimize my taxable income. And I found that was one good way to, to do so. So I would max out and put the max I could in my solo 401k. And having come from the last crash where all my stocks went away, I didn't want to invest in like the stock market. I was like, but what am I going to invest it in? I had a conversation with that business partner of mine. And I knew he did notes, but he started telling me more about them because I was networking with him and just saying, hey, what are you doing or how are you finding them and whatnot? And turns out that he was actually selling them too. He was brokering them. So I picked up one of his investments and that's how I first got into it. They did well the first year. I bought two more the next year. And then I'm like, this is awesome. Let me figure out how I could do more. Because he was, because he is my only single source of getting them, I started actually networking more to figure out who else was doing them because I wanted to know where else I could get this stuff. It was so good, right? That's where podcasts came in. And that's actually how I got into, I learned a lot through podcasts about like syndications, but I actually met people that were syndications. I got into syndications because of the people I met through podcasts. It's funny that I'm on a podcast right now even, but I also invest in commercial uh, syndications and that I learned about, you know, through all the stuff that I learned through podcasts, because I met people in person after I, you know, felt connected to them and I liked what they had to say on the podcast. And then I started investing, I pulled the trigger. So I also invest in some multifamily syndications, mobile home parks, and self-storage funds. And I've actually upgraded my single mortgage note investments I've moved my mortgage note investments of owning just individual notes to actually mortgage funds where it's actually a pool of them. So I, I trust this, this, I have a, a sponsor that working through the actual notes. So, but it's, I feel like it's more diversified because if one goes bad, it doesn't really matter because you have other ones that could do well. So now I place a lot of trust on the sponsors that I work with on all these types of passive investments. Awesome. And we definitely went through a lot of things. So I'm going to break it down one more time. When you were investing in these single family homes out of state, I think that's where a lot of people who listen to my show or who were just getting starting out, they love that. You know, they love buying a small rental out of state that cash flows. But you're saying that it's not scalable. Like, were some of the issues that you ran across, like having to find the deal, spending all the time, you know, getting the loan? What were some of the major choke points that That, prevented you from scaling? And then also, and then also, and just even working with the property management companies, I felt that like some of the property management companies, for example, they might be making only five or, you know, five, 10% of the gross annual rent, of the, of the gross monthly rent, which was only $1,300. Like my thing was this, do you think that if I only had one or two rentals with that same property manager, that they would give me the top level service if I needed something right away versus like an actual syndication that was you know, also selling to clients that were part of family office where we're dealing with, you know, folks that are investing millions and millions of dollars. I felt that some of the syndications, because there's regulated by the SEC, for example, there was just a lot more 
systems with checks and balances, I just felt like there was more trust in that the sponsors, provided that they were trustworthy sponsors, by the way, that I could go to them and really fully trust them because of some of the folks that I knew that were already investing with them. It was already, they were already scaling up. And I was just writing, I'm writing the coattails of what's, what they've already built. Does that make sense? Whereas Absolutely. I felt that on the single family homes, just invest out of state, you have to build that network yourself. But, and again, it was more so, I didn't think that property manager or, or whatnot would, would be the right person to help me figure out how to, you know, cut costs or figure out or spend that much time with me because they're only literally make a hundred dollars or so a month off of my investment where they would spend that much time with me to say, Hey, let's look at this investment and see where you could save some money or how we could do things better for you. You know, they just want it to be more so hands off uh, as well because they're managing a lot of units as well. And I, none of the things that I remember that bugged me about my out of state rentals, I remember having one in Texas. And when I first bought it, it was brand new. It was brand new development over in uh, Dallas. And I remember at the second year, the tenant moved out and did so much damage to the carpet and the carpet that it all needed to be replaced and it had to be repainted on the inside. And I remember that bill that came up was larger than the, their deposit. I had to pay about $8,000 or so. And I'm like, okay, that just ate up until like so much of that profit. This is not what I, I didn't, this out-of-state rental thing isn't what I thought it was going to be. And it's not like I could have flown out there to do anything myself. Not that I wanted to, you know, but I was, when that turnover happened and I had to pay that much out of pocket, I was like, I think this is time for me to actually do something else. I believe in real estate investing, but I don't think this is it. Cause I don't want to scale any of this. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and on top of that, you are being a lot more profitable with your sales side. Um, yes. Selling real estate and doing loans as well. Correct. Yeah. And to your point, yeah. So it's like, I loved doing the real estate and loan thing. So it's like, I tried to earn as much as possible to invest in many syndications as possible. That makes sense to me. So I don't want to have to think about, you know, like those out-of-state rentals and those ups and downs of having to deal with the turnover. And that, for example, that $8,000 story I was talking to you about, I don't want to have to go through that again. That ate up so much profit. Whereas I want something that's really, you know, turn like a really passive income where I could just, you know, check that, check the quarterly reports to make sure that they're on target, but it's really something I could put in the back of my mind at the same time. Absolutely. And then you went on to notes. So notes are great too, because the person in the home are just homeowners. Like they own the home. They'll take care of the home. You don't have to deal with any of these problems. But I think for most people who are just getting into real estate investing, they probably can't just buy notes, right? You need to have a network to get into it. It's hard to find them because I was able to find the deal, my initial deals, like I was saying, because I had a business partner that was brokering them. Okay. If I didn't know him, I wouldn't know where to go. I mean, unless I was listening to, you know, a podcast or whatnot though too. So it's just a lot of times people don't know where to go. I know sometimes local in the Bay Area, private money lenders, private money, a lot of times from the small mom and pop shops, they use people's RA money and they pay yields on that if you give them their money. So it's just, it's the same type of thing. But the yields, what I've noticed of the folks that lend out private money that want funds from IRA, from folks that have, you know, dead IRA money, the yields aren't as good as some of the yields that you'd get by investing in notes out of state, just FYI. Mm, makes sense. And then when you finally decided to go into syndications, what did you use to, I guess, check the syndicator or decide that this is a good investment to invest in? Okay, that's a really good question. Everybody does this differently. I ask who, you know, who's worked with them. And it's one of those things where 
there's no science to this, but I, I almost use my intuition at the same time. I want to see who's worth them and see what the experience is. But it's one of those things, it's like I work with people all the time in real estate sales and mortgages, and I always have this gut feeling, like a gut check. Does that make sense? Where I just need to know that if I could trust that person, that they've proven their track record, but in, in all the signs like, of how I'm feeling about this person feel good. Believe it or not, it's served me well. Again, I check reference. I do check folks that they worked with to see what the experiences have been. And so far, so good. Awesome. So I guess since you've been doing this for a very long time, what's next for you? What's been interesting is uh, like the entire world of real estate is fun because there's so many things that you can be doing. I mean, I'm doing like things on many sides of it, such as the real estate investing in syndications and notes. And I'm also involved in mortgage and real estate, you know, and selling it and whatnot. Like, I actually love selling real estate. I'm one of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm even growing, growing my real estate sales team. So that's one thing that's going on. But one of the other things that I'm probably going to end up doing since I'm already connected in the same circles is eventually have my own syndication, maybe even be a GP on a syndication. Cause that seems like it would be the next natural step. Uh, Cause I'm loving everything I'm doing right now in syndications. Awesome. Yeah. I hear a lot of people who, get on the GP side and they love it because, you know, they're being more active in their real estate investment. Yeah. So no, definitely. Awesome. Well, Dale, thank you so much for being on the show today. Do you have any last tips for our listeners before we finish up? Okay. For folks that are listening right now, it's great that you're getting the education, great that you're getting your feet wet, but take action. If I were to give you the best advice, actually, you know, learn what you can, but you're going to learn even more by just jumping into it. Whether that investment, you know, works out for you or doesn't work out for you, it's always going to be a learning experience. It will basically benefit you for, the, for that next one. You're going to always learn something. So just continue growing, continue learning, but don't be paralyzed in thinking that you're not ready yet. You are ready. Just take action. Yeah. Even if you mess up, you can take that lesson with you for the rest of your life. That's true. <laughs> All right, Dale, how can people get in contact with you? Um, you can uh, reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn, Dale Corpus. Um, I'm very active on social media, on Instagram at Soul by Dale. Uh, so feel free to follow me there or DM me. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, Dale, thank you again so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks, and have a great day.